Hey, if you have a Bible today, let's turn to John chapter 18. We are in a little mini-series leading into Easter called The Last Day. And we're simply walking with Jesus through the last day of his life before the cross. We started that in the upper room last Sunday. We went out into the garden with Jesus. And today we're going to go into the courtyard of the high priest in John chapter 18. And, and here's what today's sermon is, is going to be about. You may just want to write this down. How can I be a complete failure at following Jesus? If you're interested in how to do that, I think today's sermon is going to help you figure out what must I do in order to completely fail at following Jesus. Now, if you're like me, you're sitting here going, I really don't need a sermon to tell me how to do this. I just do it pretty good on my own. And we all certainly are familiar with falling short of following the Lord and being faithful to the Lord. He never falls short, however, being faithful to us. Now, before we talk about how you can completely fail at following Jesus, let me just sort of set the table for you and what's happening today in John chapter 18. You know, we left off last week there in the garden with this mob taking Jesus into custody, hauling him off now before the high priest. And now, beginning in verse 12 of John chapter 18, John, in such a beautiful way, is going to weave together a tapestry of contrasting scenes and really contrasting moments and events. One scene that John's going to put in front of us is the scene of the calm and the courage of Jesus in the face of the adversity that he's facing. The other scene that he's going to weave into the story of John chapter 18 is the cowardly compromise of Peter as he stands there in the courtyard of the high priest. And, and John's going to go back and forth in this chapter between these two scenes, really kind of contrasting that, right? Here's the calm courage of Jesus, and here's the cowardly compromise in Peter. So before I tell you how you can be a total failure at following Jesus, I want us to first just kind of take a moment to look at the calm and courageous Jesus in this moment, in his last day. Let's look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, So the soldiers, their commanding officer... And the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. Now listen, this is almost comical. This is their standard operating procedure. I get that, to arrest somebody and to tie them up. But if you were here last week, you remember that with just four Hebrew letters, Jesus squashed all of these people to the ground. They could not even stand before him. And so now the fact that they are putting some zip ties around his wrist is a little bit silly, right, in light of everything else that's been going on. But here's the deal. Jesus is willingly allowing this to happen to him. I told you last week, and I'll tell you again, nobody's taken his life from him. He's willingly, lovingly laying his life down for sinners like me and you. Also, though, there's something else that's going on here related to Old Testament prophecy. I want you to see Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 27. The Bible says, Take the sacrifice and bind it with cords on the altar. 
See, in the Old Testament, you would take your lamb to the high priest to be offered up for your sin and for the sin of your family, and you would bind up that lamb to take it to be offered as a sacrifice. And what are we seeing here? We're seeing the Lamb of God being bound up to go before the high priest. And he himself is the ultimate high priest. And he's going to be the lamb slain for your sin and for my sin. Our sacrifice is what he's going to be. Now, Jesus is going to face on this night two different trials. The first trial that he's going to face is the religious trial with the Jewish authorities. The second trial that he's going to face is the legal trial before the Roman authorities. And by the way, both of these trials, both the civil and religious trials, are filled with uh, incredible injustices and illegalities. Things that just aren't legal, aren't right. The first trial begins in the, the Jewish court, and it's the initial arraignment before a man by the name of Anas. Anas was the high priest in the childhood years of Jesus, but for whatever reason, the Roman authorities did not like Anas. Probably his popularity with the Jewish people was just too great and they were threatened by that. So Rome removed Anas as the high priest over the Jewish people and they replaced him with greener, less experienced people who also happened to be his sons or his son-in-laws. So that's what Rome did to Anas, but the Jewish people, as you can imagine, they resented Rome for doing that. And so in their minds, they still recognized Anas kind of among themselves as the high priest. He, he was still the person that had the religious clout in the Jewish minds. He was the person that had the political clout in the Jewish minds. And so maybe that helps you understand verse 13. Verse 13 says, First, they took Jesus to Anas, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at that time. So you might have wondered, if you just read verse 13, well, Caiaphas is the high priest. Why did they take him to his daddy-in-law first? Well, that's, that's why. Now you understand that. Now, in verses 15 through 18, John moves the scene from the trial of Jesus. He moves it to the moment in, in Peter's life out there in the courtyard that we're going to see in just a moment. We're going to come back to that, but I want to stay with the trial. So let's skip down to verse 19. The Bible says, Inside, the high priest began asking Jesus about his followers and what he had been teaching them. Jesus replied, Everyone knows what I teach. I have preached regularly in the synagogues and the temple where the people gather. I have not spoken in secret. Why are you asking me this question? Ask those who heard me. They know what I said. Here, here's what Anas is trying to do. Anas is trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself. He, he's trying to set Jesus up to say something that they could find fault with him and incriminate him. But Jewish law required that a prisoner could be asked no question that could possibly incriminate himself. It would be illegal in their system to put a prisoner in a position to answer a question that by answering it would incriminate himself. That Jewish law, by the way, carries over into the laws of our land today, right? We, our 13-year-old said this at dinner the other night. We asked a question about homework, and he said, I plead the fifth. I'm not even really sure he knows what that means, but he pled the fifth at dinner the other night about homework. That's our law, too. 
You can't be forced to answer a question that could cause you to incriminate yourself. If you're going to find a person guilty, then there has to be some evidence beyond simply a self-confession. And Jesus is making the point here, look, ask anybody. I've not been doing things secretively. I've been teaching publicly. I've been doing this on the regular basis. Ask the people what I've said. In other words, Jesus is saying, if, if I'm guilty, then, then you have to prove it. You, you carry the burden of proof. And, and listen, Jesus isn't being uncooperative here. This is not Jesus, you know, like trying to be Perry Mason. Like a third of the congregation even knows who that is. <laughs> If, if you don't know who that is, um, Tom Cruise and a few good men, right? You, you can't handle the truth, whatever. This isn't Jesus trying to be crafty from a legal standpoint. Jesus is just simply saying, let's do this legally. Let's do this right. It's not that he's trying to get out of this. He's not trying to escape death. But what he is doing is he is exposing their corruption, He's exposing their sin. He's exposing their wicked agenda. That what they have on their mind is not justice. What they have on their mind is murder. Verse 22 says, Then one of the temple guards standing nearby slapped Jesus across the face. Is that the way to answer the high priest? He demanded. And here it begins. The first sinner strikes a blow against the sinless Son of God. By the way, we know that these temple guards carried clubs, and the way it's written out in the Greek, it really makes the most sense that he struck Jesus not with his fist, but with a club. Smacked him in the face with the club. And here's what's stunning, guys, by the way. Jesus saw it coming, and he didn't flinch. He didn't dodge. He didn't duck. And I don't mean he had like some kind of ninja skills in that moment. I'm telling you, he saw it before the world was ever made. And in fact, the prophet Micah in the Old Testament, 500 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, says this, Micah 5.1, With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. They think they're judging Jesus, but he's the judge. This is his world. This is his courtroom. This is his venue. They're not judging him. He is actually judging them. They hate Jesus. And Jesus calmly replies, verse 23, If I said anything wrong, you must prove it. But if I'm speaking the truth, why are you beating me? This is Jesus just proving to them, this isn't a trial. You're not here for justice. This is a conspiracy to commit murder. Here's what's happening. They have failed to properly arraign Jesus. They've, they've not met the standard. There's no witnesses. There's no crimes. There's no indictment. Legally, they must let him go, but they won't. Because they want him dead. And they want him dead because he's a threat to them. He's a threat to the religious leaders, their power, to their control. 
He's a threat to their financial enterprise. You remember what he's already done on two occasions by now? Flipped tables, ran them out, called them what they were, called it what it was. You're a den of thieves. And this, you're thieves and this is a den of thieves. So they need him dead. Look at verse 24. Then Anas bound Jesus and sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest. By Rome's standards, the high priest. And what happens... When he goes before Caiaphas, John doesn't tell us. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us some details. In summary, I'll just say that when he gets to Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin is all gathered there together. The Sanhedrin is kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court. And the sun's not even up yet. It's still dark. That's illegal. The Sanhedrin was not to convene under the cover of darkness. And yet they are in this moment. They pay off some false witnesses, and they finally accused Jesus of blasphemy, and ultimately they accused him of trying to overthrow Caesar. This is how they want to stir up the Roman authorities and bring them into the fray, right? So the Jewish religious court doesn't have the authority to execute people, and so they got to get Rome involved if they want to see Jesus dead. And so now the trial is going to move from the religious court to the civil court before Pilate the governor. Lord willing, that's what we'll preach next Sunday from the upper room to the garden courtyard today to the palace of Pilate next Sunday. But we're going we're gonna to pause there for now with the trial of Jesus, and I want to go back in the text, and I want to pick up those pieces we skipped about Peter. Remember the contrasting situations here, the calm courage of Jesus and the cowardly compromise of Peter. We, we skipped over when John panned from the calm, courageous Jesus, and then he put the spotlight on Peter. And we want to go back and look at that. Verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus. Okay, so far so good. As did another of the disciples. Who who you want to guess that other disciple was? John. He's an eyewitness to what's going on here, all right? In John-like fashion, he doesn't tell us exactly who he is. So Peter and John, they're following Jesus through all of this. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest. So he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. This is why you and I have a firsthand account in the Gospel of John. Verse 16, Peter had to stay outside the gate. He, he didn't have the connection that John had. And then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching at the gate, and she let Peter in. It's not what you know, right? It's who you know. And the woman asked Peter, you're not one of that man's disciples, are you? No, no, he said, I'm not. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. They stood around it, warming themselves, and Peter stood with them, warming himself. Skip down to verse 25. Meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire, warming himself, they asked him again, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, no, I'm not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? And Peter denied it. And immediately a rooster crowed. Peter, 
in this moment is a complete failure at following Jesus. Have you ever been there? If not, I'd love to speak with you after church and shake your hand. If you haven't been there, you will be. And if you're wondering how people like me and you get there, I'll tell you. You'll get there when you do these four things. Here's the first one. Number one, believe that your way is better than God's way. Convince yourself of that. My way's better. I, I, I know better. I have a better way. I have this figured out. As it relates to Peter over and over again, Jesus had told him, the Messiah's got to suffer. The Messiah's going to have to die. Peter never wanted to hear that. Peter thought this plan was deficient. Peter thought he had a better plan than this. In fact, at one point, Peter pulls Jesus off to the side and he says, you've got to quit saying this stuff. This is not the way it's going to go. To which Jesus replied to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on man's interest. Peter didn't want to believe that Jesus had to die. And that disregard for God's plan, that disregard for God having the better way is what led Peter in the garden to take out his sword and cut off somebody's ear. He is consistently resistant to submitting to and surrendering to the plan of God because of this arrogant bent in his nature that says, I know better. I have a better plan than God has. Peter didn't want to accept that God's way was better than his way. And listen, if you want to be a complete failure at following Jesus, just convince yourself of that same thing. That you're smarter than God, that you know better than God, that your plan for you, your plan for those around you is far superior than God's plan. Go on putting things and people in front of God. I'm sure you're smarter than Him. Go ahead. Don't give Him the first day of your week. Don't give Him the first part of your income. I know what He says in His Word, but I'm sure you know better, right? Go on ignoring to spend time with Him daily. Neglect time in His Word. Neglect time in prayer. Who needs it? You're a genius. Even smarter than God. Young people, go on and make decisions about who you're going to date. What path you're going to follow in life without consulting God. Who needs to consult God? you got it all figured out. You know better than He does. Go on and let your friends inform you about how to relate to your spouse and your parenting and all that's involved there. Consult with them because they're probably smarter than God, right? What does he know about family, really, in the modern era that we find ourselves in? Listen, if you really want to be a total failure at following Jesus, just keep on believing my way's better. I got this figured out. Secondly, if you want to be a total failure at following Jesus, believe that you're too good to fail. Just convince yourself. It'll never happen to me. When, when Jesus warned Peter, he said, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. 
Peter protested, right? Remember what he said? Not me, Jesus. If I got to go to prison for you, I'll go to prison for you. No, you won't, Peter. Yes, I will, Jesus. Even if I have to die for you, Jesus, I'll die for you. These other losers might be cowardly and, and run away, but not me, Jesus. I'm different. I'm not like everybody else. You ever thought that way? I'm different. I'm special. Mama told me <laughs> that I'm special. I, I'm not like everybody else. If you want to be a total failure at following Jesus, just be so sure of yourself. And convince yourself that you're never going to fail. You know what the Bible says? Pride. Pride goes before a fall. If you want to be a total failure at following Jesus, believe your way's better. Believe that you're too good to fail. Number three, believe that you don't need to pray. Now, probably nobody in this room says, well, I, 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 be, I believe prayer is important. I, nobody would say, I don't need to pray. What's your life say? What, what, what's the clock say? Let, let's put prayer beside your time in front of the screen. What's it say? Are we believing that we really don't need to pray? See, in the crucial moments leading to the events of John chapter 18, Jesus had asked his disciples for one thing. Pray with me. He even took Peter and James and John aside to be a little closer to him while he prayed. And when Jesus came back to check on them, were they praying? They were sleeping. He woke them up and said, hey guys, I'm just asking for one thing. Spend some time with me in prayer. And he goes away and he comes back again. And what are they doing? They're sleeping again. Listen to me. Peter was powerless around that charcoal fire. He was unprepared around that charcoal fire because he was prayerless. He could not stand in that moment because he had failed to pray. The reason he acted so rashly in the garden and pulled out his sword and cut off somebody's ears because he was not prepared because he had failed to pray. His prayerlessness explains his moments of weaknesses beside that charcoal fire. Because of his prayerlessness, Peter was oblivious to the powers of darkness at work around him. Maybe you are too today. Maybe you're just cruising through life and you just think what you see, what you hear, is, this is just all there is and you have no clue what's happening in the spirit realm in your life. Because you're not tuned in to that realm. You're neglecting to spend time with Jesus in prayer. And because Peter was prayerless, he was a target. He was a sitting duck. Listen, if you're not praying to God, you're straying from God. It's just that simple. If you're not praying to Him, you're straying from Him. Listen, if you want to be a sitting duck for Satan and just then just simply refuse to spend time with God in prayer. If you want to be a total failure at following Jesus, what have we said? Believe that your way is better than God's way. Number two, believe that you're too good to fail. Number three, believe that you don't need to pray. Number four, believe that man is to be feared more than God. 
be more worried about what people think about you than what God thinks about you. This is why Peter denied Jesus three times. Because he cared more about what these people thought and what they might could do to him than what God would think about him. Three times. Three times Peter bowed his knee and confessed with his mouth that he didn't know the Lord. Why? Because he feared somebody else. If you want to be a total failure at following Jesus, then simply spend your days worrying about how many likes and followers, how much approval you have. If you want to be a total failure at following Jesus, just be obsessed with the applause of man rather than the applause of God. But know this. The Bible says that's a trap. That's a trap. If you consume yourself with concern over what other people think, you will not live in peace. You will live in constant fear, constant anxiety, constant worry, a constant sense of, I am not enough. I've got to perform bigger and better and greater and do more because I have got to enthrone myself with people who are going to celebrate me and approve of me. Listen, you can either live to follow Jesus or you can live so people will like you, but you can't do both. I I know people don't want to hear that, but that's just the truth. You can't serve those two gods at the same time. Your life can be dialed in to I want to be somebody on this planet in front of people. Or you can be a follower of Jesus, but you can't choose both. So if you want to be a total failure at following Jesus, believe your way is better than God's way. Believe you're too good to fail. Believe that you don't need to pray. Believe that man is to be feared more than God. Maybe now some of you are going, this, this, this is me. This explains where I am. This explains why I keep doing the same things over and over again. It's this. This is what's driving me. This is, this is the posture of my heart. And, and maybe you're sitting here today and you see yourself in the story of Peter. You're sitting here today thinking of yourself, I've blown it again. I can't do this. I'm a total failure at following Jesus. But I'm going to assume you're here today because that's not how you want to go out. I'm going to assume you're here today because that's not how you want this story to end. Here's good news. That's not how the story ended for Peter. He's standing there on that last day with Jesus in that courtyard, a total failure next to a charcoal fire. Listen, there's only one other place in the New Testament where that word in the Greek for charcoal fire is found. It's found three chapters over in John chapter 21. Let me tell you the story of John chapter 21. By the time you get to John chapter 21, Jesus has died. He's been resurrected. The disciples have seen him two times now. They know he's alive. But it's still not all making sense to them. 
So they go back to doing what they, they are familiar with. They go back to doing what they're comfortable with. They go back north to Galilee. They get on the boat. Peter says, We're going, I'm going fishing. And they said, we'll, we'll go with you. This, this is their comfort zone, right? This is where life makes sense for them the most. And the Bible says they got into that boat that night and they fished all night long and they didn't catch a thing. Nothing. Now think about this. These are professional fishermen. They're already beat down and discouraged, afraid. Who knows all the negative emotions that are going through their mind, right? And they go out to do what they know they're good at and now they're not good at that either. They don't catch anything all night long. And they're worn out. And the sun's just beginning to come up, like this morning. I don't know what it was like. I, I have to drive into the sun every day when I come to work. Man, I got blinded today. No kidding, coming in. Couldn't hardly see. And they're out there. The sun's just beginning to come up. And they can just see the silhouette of somebody walking on the beach. And that guy stops, and he calls out to him and says, Hey, how many did y'all catch? Tired. Frustrated. Hangry men, fishermen, their egos a little bruised, you know what I'm saying? And some landlubber says, how many you got? And can you imagine how they wanted to answer that question? Right? I'm sure the Holy Spirit did a little editing here in John chapter 21, kind of bowed up, mind your business, you know? Somebody finally called back and said, Nothing, got nothing. And then it gets crazier. The guy on the beach says, Hey, well, uh, why don't you try fishing off the right side of the boat? Okay. Appreciate that, because we didn't even realize it was the right side of the boat. We've never done this before. We just left, left side, worked out all night. You mean fish could be on the other side of the boat? Who knew? Thanks, pal, but we're going to pass up that little tidbit of wisdom, right? Somebody probably spoke up on the boat and said, y'all, if we don't humor that guy, he's going to hound us. And he's going to say, hey, why didn't, why didn't y'all try the other side of the boat? Just do it. They throw the net on the other side of the boat. Start to pull it back in like they had a thousand times already that night, Right? This time their arm almost gets jerked off. They all wake up. They're screaming. They're yelling, calling for help. Everybody's grabbing the net. They're trying to pull it in. They can't get it in. John gets it. John says to Peter, and this is the way I heard somebody teach it in Sunday school. Or if you watch those old movies about Jesus, you know, those old cheesy movies about Jesus, John goes, Peter, it is the Lord. <laughs> Y'all, a hangry fisherman ain't going to say, Peter, <laughs> it is the Lord. Oh, John is jumping up and down, rocking the boat. Peter! That's Jesus. The Bible says Peter was, the King James actually says he was naked. That's, that's weird. 
I know it's weird. Those fish weren't dumb. He wasn't literally naked. Here's what the King James means by that. He had taken off his outer garment. He had an undergarment on. You know, so this would be like, I have an undergarment on. See, I had a t-shirt on under here. My granddad taught me always wear a t-shirt under your shirt. Just better that way. So I always wear a t-shirt under my shirt. So if, if I'm out working somewhere, then I'm probably going to take my outer shirt off, right? And I can just move better. And school. That's what Peter did. That's all that's meant by that. And here's what's crazy. John goes, Peter, this is the Lord. Peter forgets about his friends. He forgets about the boat. He forgets about the fish. He forgets that he doesn't even have his, have his outer garment on, which was customary that if you're going to go have a conversation with somebody, you've got to put your shirt back on if you're going to go talk to somebody. The Bible says Peter grabs his outer garment, and he jumps in the water. He's a grown man, and it's early in the morning, and they're 100 yards out. That's all, 100 yards out. That's all. But if you, I don't know the last time you swam 100 yards. It's been a while for this dude, right? But Peter decides, I'm off this boat. I want to be with Jesus. And he gets to the beach, and he's just soaking wet, slack-jawed, eyes like saucers. And Jesus is standing next to, you guessed it, a charcoal fire. Cooking breakfast for the men that had failed him. And not one time, not two times, but three times, next to that fire, Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You think that stung? You think that question stung Peter? And for Jesus to ask it three times, you think Peter understood why? Do you think the smell of that charcoal fire was haunting to him as he stood there in that moment? But Peter has repented. He's already taken all that to the Lord. And Peter's probably thinking, Jesus... I once thought my way was better than your way, but now I know better. Jesus, I once believed that I was too good to fail, but now I know better. Jesus, I, I once thought that sleeping was more beneficial to me than praying, but I know better. Jesus, I once thought that those guys in that boat and those fish were more important than you, but now I know better. See, Peter's now abandoned the ship of public perception and everything that went along with that just to be with Jesus. And if I could just summarize what Jesus says to Peter by that charcoal fire, he says this, Peter, good. Now you're ready. Now you're ready to serve me. The charcoal fire of failure was now the charcoal fire of fellowship. The charcoal fire where Peter collapsed as a follower of Jesus is now the charcoal fire where, G where Peter is commissioned 
to serve Jesus. Peter's story didn't end in failure, and yours doesn't have to either. Your failure doesn't make it harder for God to use you. It just makes it harder for you to believe that he can. There's no future in continually replaying the past. Get out of the past, abandon that ship, take a leap, and run to Jesus today. Or swim to Jesus today. Peter came to know my mess and my mess-ups don't define me. But my Messiah, he defines me. Listen, if you feel shamed today because you haven't lived up to your own hype and you've got thrown off your high horse, good. Now you're ready. Now you're ready to follow Jesus. Don't let your failure stop you. Be a steward of it instead. Your past doesn't, in Christ, it doesn't define you, but it can prepare you for what God has in store for you. Jesus isn't in this room today looking for that one perfect person that he can use. There are no perfect people for him to use. What he's looking for, the Bible says, the eyes of the Lord are roaming to and fro. You know what he's looking for? Somebody that's broken, willing, available to the Lord. The Christian life is not about perfection. It's about direction. What direction are you moving in? Are you repenting? Are you consistently repenting and turning to the Lord? Don't quit. You blew it. Don't quit. Don't quit on Jesus. Don't quit on your family. Don't quit on his church. He's not quitting on you. He's waiting. Early this Sunday morning, on the beach of your life, when you've come up empty all week long, he stands ready to fill you with what you've been longing for. Run to him. God, we bow before you. Grateful for grace. Grateful, God, for your mercy. Grateful that you filled the Bible with stories like we read today in John 18 and John 21 to remind us that even those who physically walked with you were no different from us. There were good moments and there were horrendous moments. But you never turned your back. And God, I'm convinced there's not a single person in this room today that you've turned your back on. Oh, we've turned ours on you. But you've never turned yours on us. 
God, I pray that today would be the charcoal fire part two for some folks in this room today. That today we would know that you're inviting us to come and to be with you, to draw near to you. You, you didn't push Peter back into the sea. He found warmth. He found grace. He found everything that his heart was longing for with you, Jesus, in that place. May it be true of us in this place today too, God. It's just simply time for some of us to abandon the things that we've clung to for so long. And to say, Jesus, you're all I need. You're more than enough. With heads bowed and with eyes closed. Can you just see Peter standing there dripping wet? He came to Jesus just as he was. today you may be dripping with all kinds of stuff in your life that you would prefer not to even be seen he already sees it so why don't you just bring it all with you and stand before the Lord today he'll do the changing you just come trusting. Let's stand. Let's worship the Lord. Let's respond. He's speaking to our hearts today.